Welcome to the Cartoonist Kayfabe Courtroom. Once again, I'm Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. Before we get into this Todd McFarland deposition, I uh, want to invite you guys to like and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Hit the bell icon. And uh, for those of you who watch the videos to the very end, thank you very much because what happens is that gooses the algorithm and pushes our videos to people who are into comics but might not have yet given Cartoonist Kayfabe a shot helps us increase those numbers of subscribers. And once we hit 100,000 subs, then that's when I'm gonna start the gears going, start really thinking about putting together that Cartoonist Kayfabe convention that will be forthcoming in the future at some point. But we need a critical mass in order to make that viable in the way that I can't fly Jeff Darrow in first class, man, if we don't have a big number of people uh, that are willing to come to this thing, man. So like, uh, we're back to the Angela Miracle Man spawn deposition. We started off the kayfabe courtroom with Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman, he's coming to town in May. Neil, come see us. We're the comic book guys in town. It's disrespectful to come into our city and not, not pay some fealty, not say what's up to the comic book makers in town. Uh, if you have got your tickets to go see Neil Gaiman at uh, some various venue or city that is not Pittsburgh, Make sure you start you chant that cartoonist kayfabe <laughs> gimmick, man. Let him know that we're that we're looking for him. Uh, the shoot interview will be fantastic. And Neil, we won't even be talking about this bullshit here, man. You got a nice long career, got a lot going on in your life. We could talk about plenty of other very cool things that have nothing to do with stuff that you are bound by confidentiality uh, agreements. But uh, here we are, Jimmy. After about three or four other depositions and pieces of testimony, the Todd Father should uh, do a shout out to Daniel Best. Yes. Uh, has assembled a lot of these um, various depositions, including this one, uh, so that we have access to it. So um, you can find his work, uh, maintains a website with more information on these various court cases. And Gaiman and McFarlane is not the only one that Daniel Best has written about and, and put together. So um, if you're interested in more of this, look for Daniel Best. <laughs> I'm looking at the uh, plaintiff's uh, lawyers, man. Fullian Lardner, uh, Alan Arnston, Esquire, and Jeffrey A. Simmons. Look like handfuls of litigators and solicitors uh, for these guys, man. Todd McFarlane, represented by attorneys Blackwell Sanders, Pepper Martin, Michael A. Kahn. Like, these are teams of lawyers, man, for this case. Spawn 9 was a very expensive comic to create for everybody involved, man. Yeah, no doubt about it. Even Image Comics sending, uh, sending attorneys to represent them. So uh, I guess the way we'll play this game, Jimmy, I'll be the voice of the Todd father. You could be the voice of everybody else. It seems like Mr. Arnston, who is a Neil Gaiman lawyer, is going to be starting off or probably producing most of this uh, deposition. All right. You ready to go? Let's do it. Please state your name. Todd. Full name? Yes. Todd Dean Mark McFarlane. What's your home address? Beep. Phoenix, Arizona, 85044. Mr. McFarlane, it's my understanding that in addition to having your deposition today on an individual basis, you're also being presented as the designated witness on a number of the 30B6 topics involving the corporate defendants. Is that correct? Correct. And I guess what I would suggest is if Attorney Khan wants to just read into the record, Mr. Khan, I'll go ahead. For the record, earlier this week or late last week, I sent Jeff Simmons a letter going through the 10 topics that were listed in the 30B6 deposition notice designating Todd McFarlane for certain of those topics and designating Julaine Claybaugh on certain other accounting topics concerning documents she had been gathering in response to the document request. Todd has previously been designated under the 30B6 notice for topics 1, 5, 7, and 10 from that deposition notice. For the purpose of this deposition, Alan, I mentioned to you earlier, Julaine Claybaugh was not with Todd McFarlane Productions back in 1997 when there were a great deal of accounting type and royalty type documents reviewed and compiled in July of 1997 before certain materials were sent to Mr. Gaiman in August of 1997, and Todd McFarlane had at least an opportunity to review all those materials back then. And to the extent that any of the other topics that are included in the 30B6 designations, which deal with copies being sold and monies being made on various products related to the comic books at issue, 
Then Todd McFarlane Productions will also designate Todd McFarlane, McFarlane himself to testify on those topics. That was two sentences. <laughs> I just Whoa. I just imagine Todd McFarlane go the entire time. Yes, I feel like I need cardio training after that. Back From the to, diaphragm, uh, yes. the Alexander technique. All right, uh, Mr. Arnston then. So if I understand the subject areas that Mr. McFarlane is the witness for, he is the witness for topics 1, 5, 7, and 10. And as to the remaining topics, he is the witness up to a certain date, Mr. Kahn. Yes, he's a witness at least through 1998. Mr. Arnston, okay. Mr. Kahn. And since 1998, Julian Claybaugh has been going through the company records to try to find more recent information on sales of Angela Comics, on sales of Angela action figures and other items that would be included within those topics. And she would have more knowledge about what those documents say than Todd would, Mr. Arnston. So do we have a separation date between the two witnesses or what are you saying in that regard? Mr. Kahn, I'm saying, why don't we let Todd try to talk about everything? Mr. Arnston, okay. Mr. Kahn, but he may not know actual numbers on sales numbers from 99 to the present because those documents have been gathered by Julaine, but I wanted you to be able to ask him those areas as well. And I'm going to just uh, interject right now. This is from 2002, yes. this deposition. Yes. All right, back to Mr. Arnston. So I'll be proceeding as if Mr. McFarlane is the designated witness on all the 30B6 topics, recognizing that there's more recent information since 1998. Mr. Kahn, of a quantitative nature, Mr. Arnston, concerning numbers, he may not have the information, and Julian Claybaugh might. Off the record, discussion off the record. By Mr. Arnston. Mr. McFarlane, why don't you summarize your educational background from high school graduation up? I attended Spokane Falls Community College starting in, I think, the beginning of 1980, spent about a year and a half there, and then transferred to Eastern Washington University and stayed there until graduation in 1984, about May of 84. What was your degree in? It was just a BA. Major? Well, in the field of art. Okay. Graphic design. Did you graduate from high school in 1980? Nope. 79. Take me up through your employment history from college graduation on. Just bring it through chronologically. From the beginning of college? College graduation. Oh, college graduation? Or if there was some significant employment prior to college graduation, you can bring that up, but I don't care to know about waiting tables. Graduation about May of 84, started working for Marvel Comics, sort of a subdivision called Epic Comics, and then moved, and, and then in 85, moved over to DC Comics, worked at DC Comics as a freelancer for about three years and then till about 88, went back to Marvel comic books and stayed there as a freelancer until August of 1991 and then have been self-employed with, starting in the end of 1991, beginning of 1992, Todd McFarlane Productions, uh, that I'm in the company where I employ myself and became part shareholder of Image Comic Books in 1992. And then the toy company, I think, uh, was like around Christmas 94, maybe. Uh, maybe it might have been, it might have been Christmas of 93. Give me one second, Jimmy. That's okay. I'll, I'll uh, interject once again to say, when you see those dates laid out, wow, did things happen pretty fast. Like a couple of years at DC, a couple of years at Marvel, and we're at Image. Yeah. It's an incredible... Um, Less than 10 years. Yes, way less. You know, that's that's impressive. Yes. All right, are you ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you say the toy company, is that TMP Worldwide? Well, I refer to it as TMP International. Okay. Now, can I make a clarification? Yes. I have done stuff in Hollywood. Should I tack that on here too? Yes, why don't you? I was an exec producer on an HBO animated series from 97 through 99, was an exec producer on a full-length feature uh, for New Line Cin Cinema 96, 97, directed, co-directed a couple of music videos probably in 1999, 2000, and worked on a film that just got released here 2001 on doing animation, pro produced animation, and then a couple small sorts of screenplays, scripts in between that. Any other general areas? No, not really. The film you just finished in 2001, what's that called? Dangerous Lives of the Altar Boys. And you did animation and were a producer? Well, there's no sort of good guild rules for animation, but I was credited as a producer of the animation sequences in that film. 
an executive producer for HBO, was that the Spawn series? Correct. And the executive producer for New Line, that was the Spawn movie? Right. Backing up now, let me cover one other topic. There are various corporate entities with your names or initials on them. Uh-huh. Can you tell me what they are and what they do? Todd McFarlane Productions is essentially a publishing company that that does some freelance artwork, designs stuff, and owns a lot of trademarks, copyrights, and a lot of characters we design. TMP International is a toy company that produces, for the most part, action figures that we distribute real worldwide. And TMP Asia is a smaller subdivision which helps with our international FOB business with our international distributors. With toys. With toys, right. And uh, McFarland Design Group is where we do a lot of research and development for a lot of the toy designs. And McFarland Toys Canada is, again, a smaller entity that helps facilitate the sales and distribution of toys up in Canada. Little conjecture piece. He's got some smarty pants working with him that knows to have all those like little subdivisions, probably for like tax benefits and write-offs. It's like an R&D thing. I just imagine that that is something that makes zero money. Just something that you could dump expenses into, man. Back in the game. Any others? TME, which is Todd McFarlane Entertainment, is an office in Southern California that deals with entertainment, usually with Hollywood business. And are you the sole owner of all these entities, recognizing that one of your entities may own other entities, both getting it back to people? I think TME is the only one that I'm not uh, 100%. Okay, who else is an owner of that? Terry Fitzgerald. Okay, and how about McFarlane Worldwide, Inc.? You know, I don't know. I don't know what that does. Seriously? Right. Okay, but you own it? Yes. All that's on the list I own. Okay. A lot of accounting reasons for it. There it is right there. Okay. And you're also an owner of Image Comics. One of the shareholders, right. And you're the president? Right. Are you an officer of any other companies? No, I'm a share owner. I'm a shareholder of another. Are you a shareholder of other companies? I'm putting aside public companies, that kind of thing. Are you a shareholder of any other closely held companies? I own a minority stake in an NHL franchise, the Edmonton Oilers. Anything else? No. Were you one of the founders of Image? Yes. And when was that? That would have been late, about December of 91. By the way, they just have been celebrating February 1st, the 30th anniversary, the official birthday uh, 30th anniversary of Image Comics. Where that snap was taken. So uh, now it's me, Image Comics, and Gilbert Hernandez as February 1sters. Ah, yes. Happy birthday, Jimmy. Thank you. And who are the current Image shareholders? Mark Silvestri, Jim Valentino, Eric Larson, and myself. And do you receive a salary from any of your entities? From Todd McFarlane. From TME International, I receive a salary from, and from Todd McFarlane Productions. And then then anything I do is either an individual or through TME through Hollywood, but those are the steady paychecks. Those are on kind of a project basis? Right, project by project. And we can designate this part confidential. The following excerpt was designated confidential by Mr. Arnston. When you started work at Marvel in 1984, what did you do? I was a penciler on a backup series for a comic entitled Steve Englehart's Coyote. Were you paid a salary? Well, a page rate. You get paid a page rate x amount of dollars per page and what's a penciler do he does the drawings with the pencil okay and he's paid piecework so much a page yes and so as you i guess i might as well try to get an understanding of how this business works what is given to you and what do you produce to put on presumably to the next step in the process in that specific case they would have given me what they call a plot outline which is essentially two to four pages that just give a general overview of what they want you to draw And then depending upon the number of pages I have allocated, I have to get all the information visually onto the artboards. So, and then from there I hand it in and it would sort of go through the process. What is the process? What's the process in the creation of a comic book? There's variations in it, you know, so, uh, but again, it sort of goes something like this, that, you know, ideas are come up with and you hire a writer. The writer takes the idea and then either writes a script for an outline uh, that I was just talking about. From there, the writer's job is then given to the penciler, and the 
And the penciler, again, has to take all that information, put it into the allocated number of pages. A traditional comic book right now is 22 pages. So that's sort of the bulk of what you will see on the stands. Once the pencils are done, it will go back. There's usually an editor on the books. The editor makes sure that nothing is sort of getting off track. They will send it out to an inker. An inker will then, just like his name sounds, he will take an ink pen and turn the pencils into a black and white sort of finished image. Again, it goes back to the editor. He'll hand it over to a letterer. Uh, a letterer will take, see, he's, he's in the digital era where it usually goes to the letterer and then the inker in the old school method. A uh, letterer will take a script uh, and some, and sometime while the book's being inked, the, the writer is getting copies of the pencils and is now writing a script. So at some point the script comes in from the writer, the ink pages come in from the inker and now they've got to get balloons placed on it, you know, where the words are in those circles with tails on them. Uh, they give that to the letterer, he does the balloon placements, puts it on top of the black and white artwork and then the last guy in the run is the colorist who will then take all of it and will color it and to get back uh, before it then gets shipped off to the printer to go through the process of converting it into tens if not hundreds of thousands of books <laughs> okay and you started out as a penciler yes and you worked at Marvel initially from 84 to 85, correct? Yes. Was that always as a penciler? Yes. And were you always paid on a sort of page rate, as you discussed? Yes. And in 1985, you went over to DC Comics, correct? Yes. Why? They say a rising tide raises all ships, Jimmy, and cartoonist Kayfabe, the YouTube channel, is brought to you by the comic books that we make. Uh, we each have a bunch of stuff that's in print, so let's give it a quick run-through. And Kayfabers, if you dig the channel, you dig our comics, Kayfabe affect these comics. Let these publishers know that cartoonist Kayfabe is a force to be reckoned with, man. Uh, to begin with, my earliest graphic novel, WYSIWYG, Portrait of a Serial Hacker, follows the history of high technology from the phone system to WikiLeaks. Uh, through the vessel of a single computer hacker, 288 pages. Back to print is the box sets and uh, new printings of each volume of Hip Hop Family Tree, which is my linear uh, sort of retelling of the history of hip hop and rap music. Four volumes in that set. I drew this stuff from 2013 about 2015. After that comes X-Men Grand Design, where I take the history of X-Men, probably 8,000 pages of material, uh, mostly by Chris Claremont, miniseries, uh, little limited series, things like that, combine it all into one big uh, story, 240 pages of primetime X-Men comics. Get these volumes while they're still in print. There's an omnibus as well. The stuff that I've been putting my energy to lately is Red Room Comics, Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit, The Antisocial Network. This trade paperback is on stands today, collects the 2021 issues of Red Room, and lots of extra material in the back. Coming up in March is Red Room Trigger Warnings, issue number one, going to be coming out on a monthly basis, every issue completely self-contained. This is the cover that's going to be on the racks in the stores. These are the variants to go along with these comics, including the Jim Rugg, By Way of Robert Crumb, Zap Comics Zero cover. I'm going to go in reverse order, Ed, and start with Hulk Grand Design. This is my next book that's going to be available in comic shops everywhere starting in March, but you can pre-order it now. This is a retelling of the Hulk history, celebrating 60 years of the Incredible Hulk coming in March, and uh, 10,000 pages distilled down into two oversized issues, and these are some of the variant covers that will be available for Hulk Grand Design, Ed Piscor. Peach Momoko, Marcus Martin, and now Jeff Darrow. Yes. So you can order any of these at your local comic shop. These are not retailer incentives, so just let the comic shop know which cover you want. Get all the covers if you want to. They won't cost anything extra. And uh, pick this up in March, but order it now next time you're at your comic shop or call your comic shop. Let them know about Incredible Hulk Grand Design. You can also still get Street Angel, Deadly Girl Live from Image Comics. A homeless ninja on a skateboard. This collects eight complete stories of the deadliest girl alive and is available wherever books are sold. And The Plain Janes, my 500-page uh, homage to shoujo manga about a group of high school 
kind of outcasts who start doing public art around their community and get all kinds of trouble as a result of that. Uh, one of the first young adult graphic novels, this thing actually began in 2005 and was just completed in 2019. So you can still pick that up again wherever books are sold. Now that we're done paying the bills, back to the video. The book that I had been working on at Marvel, although I was only doing a backup, the book got canceled, so essentially I had I had no work. Uh, so, you know, you just jump from job to job. And so I went back uh, to somebody I'd met and sent and corresponded with earlier, and I was able to pick up another job. And what was that? Well, initially, it was a couple of what we call fill-in issues, which are sort of temp jobs to get you through month to month. But it became, it turned into a permanent job which was the penciler on a book entitled Infinity Incorporated. And when you say a book, that's... A comic book. A comic book series? A comic book series, correct. And so these Infinity comic books, they had come out on a regular basis? Yes, uh, they were a monthly publication at the time. All I could think about is Dan Klaus' pussy. Isn't that uh, Infinity... Comics group? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's funny. <laughs> and so that becomes a regular job for you? Yes. And were you the sole penciler, or did you work with other pencilers on it? It depended on each issue, it de depending upon their deadlines and how fast or slow I was at any given time. And how long did you work as a penciler for that Infinity comic book? About three years. And again, you were paid on a page rate? Yes. Were you, is that a work for hire? I believe so. Did you sign any kind of agreements in connection with that with DC? Yes, on the Infinity one I had a contract. And is that a contract that says that this is how much you'll be paid and this is what you'll do and what rights to your... Who has rights to your work product? Uh, and things like sometimes they include sort of if you do 10 issues in a row on time, they will give you a couple extra bucks or sometimes they will include medical or something like that. So it's spelled out what to expect from them, yes. And how much in this kind of job, how much freedom or artistic leeway do you have? I would say a great deal, actually. Uh, as a guy who's put the visual, you know, you have to, sometimes you have to condense a writer's ideas, and sometimes you have to expand uh, it depending upon, you know, again, you've got this allotment, and at times, you know, you get stories. You just go, this is bigger than 22 pages, you know. Uh, other times, it was shorter than 22 pages. You had to stretch it. So depending on any given month, you just... And the way you lay out the pages completely, it's completely up to the artist's sort of interpretation of how they sort of want to pace it all out. So I'd say yes. I'd say we had a lot of freedom. In connection with this job, did you consider yourself a creator? Well, a penciler of comic books, yes. That's sort of how I called myself and introduced myself. I do pencil comic books. And you did that at DC. You had essentially the same job at DC from 85 to 88. Yes. And then you went back to Marvel? Right. Why? Everybody is sort of looking out for their career. And I'd been on the book for three years, and I was looking. It was a team. Uh, it may seem silly, but it was a team book, which meant I, it had a lot of characters in it, and I had to get very arduous drawing. And it can get very arduous drawing uh, a lot of people. So I was looking to see if I could grab a job that was sort of more focused on a headline character than doing 20 guys in a book. Did Marvel offer you that job? I think I did a couple fill-ins for them uh, to just sort of show that I can meet deadlines. And then I ended up picking up. They gave me Incredible Hulk to pencil. And was that a monthly comic book again? Yes. You were the penciler for Incredible Hulk? Yes. For what period of time? Probably 88, 89 era. Was your contractual arrangement with Marvel for Incredible Hulk different in any way from your... Con contractual arrangement with DC? I don't know if I ever had a contract. Uh, once I went back to Marvel, I was just, it was just piecemeal at that point. So I don't recall if I had a contract with them or not. You were paid per page? Per page, right. And it was a work for hire arrangement again? Yes. So you understood you didn't retain any intellectual property rights in the work you had done. Is that correct? Right. I think they actually printed it on the back of the checks just in case you didn't understand. How long were you working as the penciler for Incredible Hulk? About 18 months, something like that. Then what did you do? Did a little bit of Batman back over at DC for a couple of months, and then moved on to do penciling on a comic called Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, conjecture, we have a Batman Year 2 video that we've done, which is the McFarlane pencils uh, for, for that Batman story that he just mentioned. Fun comic to look at, some cool guns, things like this. 
he just made a Batman Year Two figure that's based on the cover with the crazy cape. Yeah. So that's like one big solid piece of plastic that you could take off and put on like a more sensible cape if you want to see the actual body and stuff. But you could put on this cloak that just has all the McFarlane folds. The spawn, the spawn cape. Hundred, hundred percent. So how did you come about switching? Why did you switch from Hulk to Batman and then from Batman to Spider-Man? When I was doing the Hulk, I was I was building speed, and so I was capable of doing more than one book a month. So I picked up the odd job, but then the opportunity but then the opportunity when I left DC, I told a couple of people, I'll come back and do some Batman, and the opportunity came up to do some Batman. I did that, but it was only temporary, three months. And once that job ended, then I go, well, I'm down to one book. I can actually do two books. So I was, so I went looking for another job, and I ended up with Amazing Spider-Man. During this period of time, and again, this reflects my lack of knowledge of the comic book industry, is your career advancing? In other words, are you building a reputation in any sense of the word? Can you command higher rates of pay, that type of thing, or is it still sort of a commodity? No, there's a little bit of that in there. Again, at times, it's not different than a normal business in that they have 20-year vets there, and they don't want you to sort of exceed sort of the senior, you know, artist. And so, you know, you'd ask. They always used to say, I can't pay you more than that guy, you know, the 20 years. Uh, and, and, okay, I understand that. Wow. This, uh, this jargon. Um, but they are very good, and the raise they gave you a lot of times is to character. It doesn't cost them any money. They shift you from a character you don't like to a character you do. Because you leave the office, well, I'm doing Superman, cool. But you didn't get a raise, right? So you go, oh my goodness. But then you try to figure out who's your favorite characters, who your favorite characters are, so you can actually have an answer for it. But sometimes they would bump you up. But it was maybe 5 or $10 a page at a time or something. Is there any answer in there? Like, what, what, did, what did I just read, Jim? Yeah, it's interesting because I thought he might get into royalties, uh, you know, which obviously uh, Spider-Man, you're, you're better off than, I don't know, Quasar or yeah. something. Yeah, still might. Yeah. Um, it reminds me a little bit of, like, just getting bumped to a character you like. Cornette talks about dudes that wanted belts in the territory days and it was like you don't get more money it's a pain in the ass because now you've got to carry it around and if you're flying it's even worse you know that's kind of this yeah it's like you're you're a mark right <clears throat> and that was the progress of your career up that we've covered so far right and you started working on spider-man in what 89 yes i think so then again let's just be clear here it's called amazing spider-man okay because we are going to get later to we are going to get later to a book called Spider-Man, so I don't want to mix our metaphors here. Amazing Spider-Man. <laughs> Not exactly a metaphor, but <laughs> Amazing Spider-Man. At the beginning, right. And how is Amazing Spider-Man different from Spider-Man? They, on some of the more popular characters, given that a book can only come out once a month, they go, hey, here's more than one week in a month. It's like a revelation. And so they figure out how to do sort of another version of it. And so they had three, you know, Superman and Batman, Spider-Man, X-Men. All the popular guys usually have more than one title going at any one time. Okay, so you initially were doing the penciling for Amazing Spider-Man and anything else at that time? I did a quick couple months on a miniseries for DC called, I think it was called Invasion. I think that might have been the title, so I did that. Talk about a weird book. Totally. You indicated that with your initial work for DC, you were operating under a written contract, correct? Right. And as best you can recall, when you worked for Marvel, you were not operating under a written contract, correct? Right. Oh, I'm sorry. Right. I don't recall one. And was that true throughout the period with regard to when you were working for DC and when you were working for Marvel? Did you typically work under written contracts with DC and not under written contracts with Marvel? No. I think one time I went back and I did all the stuff like the Batman fill-ins if you will, and the invasion. Uh, I don't think that there was any contracts for that. Was that also true all the way through your Marvel employment, no contracts? I think so. I don't think we ever had a formal contract. So when you then, take me through from when you started working on Amazing Spider-Man until you left Marvel. Amazing Spider-Man probably started in 88, 89. I worked on that 
one for two and a half years in that area. And then by the time I progressed into, it was the only book I was doing at the time. And I had, I decided instead of doing two books, what I'd rather do is the penciling and the inking on the same book instead of handing it over to somebody else. So I was the penciler and the inker on Spider-Man as well as doing the covers. And so, and so just because I was always sort of curious little kid, you know, I was getting somebody else's stories and I wanted to write my own stories. And so knowing that something had to give, I walked away from Amazing Spider-Man and said, you know, I want to try and find a job that I can write and I don't want to, I don't want to write somebody else's stuff. And so I'll just quit and I'll go see if somebody will give me a job as a novice writer, if you will, but a skilled artist at this point moving from there. Given at the time Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man, was doing pretty good and I helped boost the sales on that book, they didn't want me really leaving Spider-Man. So I don't know what the origin of it was, but they had Spider-Man books and somebody figured out there's four weeks. So they went, well, what if we let you stay on Spider-Man? We'll let you write, we'll let you write it, we'll let you create a new Spider-Man book for you. Uh, I mean, it was better, better than I'd ever thought. I thought I was falling into part, into that part because it was like a big title and I was sort of a novice writer, but of course I enthusiastically said yes. And so then I became the writer, penciler, inker of a new title that was just called Spider-Man. There were no adjectives in front of it. So this was a monthly comic and you were doing everything on it other than the, well, up to the lettering. Right. Although there's more than, right. Although there's more one or two two issues I actually did letter and one that I colored so I dabbled in all of it at some point all right but there was just but there was just those three jobs were the main jobs I did writing penciling inking was this still on a work for hire basis right and did you retain any of the intellectual property rights to any of the spider any of these spider-man books that you did no were you still paid on a page rate right but presumably your pay is going up as you're doing additional jobs with it? Well, you get some extra money on the royalties depending on sales. So again, uh, that's where they could keep your page rates going down. And well, if you go on a big selling book, you get some extra money. Is that true if you're a penciler? Right. It's true at every one of the stages then? I can't say that for sure. I don't know if that's true. I don't know. And were these royalty agreements, was there a standard rate, a standard formula or a program in place? Yes, I think so. So again, for a book that you were doing, would you get, there would be some royalty arrangement for the stories you were the writer on, correct? Right. And then there would be a royalty arrangement for the books that you were a writer and penciler on, correct? If I met their formula, right. And can you just describe for me what the formula was, how it worked? You know, I think, I think it was if you sold uh, more than around 140,000 copies, then you were in line to get something. Did you create any characters in connection with this work? With the Spider-Man work? Yes. Yes. And did any? Did you get any rights in connection with the characters you created? No. So all, I mean in connection with your work, you understood it was all work for hire, correct? Correct. And your employer was keeping all of the, all of the sort of residual rights to your work, correct? Correct. So during what period of time? Excuse me for a minute. During what period of time were you the writer for Spider-Man? Probably 90, 91. Were you doing anything else during that time period? I don't think so. So what did you do from there? After Spider-Man? Yes. I stopped working on the book. We had our first child, my wife and I, and I wanted to take a break. We never had a kid before, so I wanted to sort of enjoy that time. That would have been August 1991. And I've been having off and on conversations with sort of other freelancers and friends about sort of saying, why don't we, why don't we start our own company? What are we working for the companies for? So sort of dancing to their tune to some extent. Why don't we go and try to band together? And so by the end of 1991, we gathered seven of us, and three of us announced uh, to Marvel that we were in unison leaving Marvel comic books to sort of start a commune of artists and writers together, and that started. Uh, that began when we ended up calling it Image Comics, and that began in 1992, the beginning of 92. Who were the other founders of Image Comics? Back then, the other six would have been Mark Silvestri, Eric Larson, Jim Valentino, Rob Liefeld, Jim Lee, Wills Portacio. 
Image was founded at the start of 92? I'd say probably December, December of 91. What did you do in connection with your work with Image initially? Well, Image was put together to sort of create a logo. You know, we had sort of a brand name. We as artists were not necessarily skilled in the details of business at that time, so we ended up running into some people that had a smaller company called Malibu Comics, and they offered to publish the books for us to help us on our way, let us sort of as as much as possible concentrate on doing the art, if you will, and the books and the writing and not worry about the other things that are inherent with the publishing of a comic book. So each of us went to our own little hovels, started our own companies, created, created our own characters, and then we fed those ideas in the form of comic books into this commune, and then those were published by Malibu Comics starting in 1992. So when was the first comic you did published by Malibu Comics? June 1992, I believe. And what comic was that? Spawn Issue 1. Were you the... What was your involvement in Spawn Issue 1? I was the writer, penciler, inker, creator, editor. You know, most of the dirty work. I did the, the dirty work other than the lettering and the coloring at that point. So you did everything but the lettering and coloring for the final copy that was sent into Malibu to publish. Right. For the most part, right. And the first Spawn issue one came out in June 1992? Yes. Then did it come out at a certain frequency? We attempted to be monthly. I can't quite say that we were accurate every month, no. Does Spawn still come out on a regular basis? Yes. And are you still, do you still write and draw for Spawn? No, I help in the plotting and the editorial work. In 1992, were you involved in any other comics other than Spawn? No. Did you enter in, into any kind of contractual arrangement with Image with regard to Spawn? I don't know if there were any formal contracts at that time or not. Did you enter... Because, again, this is sort of a shell of a company, so, there's not real, so there wasn't really sort of a company. It was a commune. Did you generate any contracts with Malibu in connection with Spawn? I don't know. I remember having conversations with them individually because they understood that there was no Image. Uh, it was only the individuals, so I think they had to negotiate individually. Mr. Khan, let me clarify it for you. When Alan asks you about contracts, he's not asking you for some legal definition. It can be an agreement, either written or oral. That's what he's doing. Oh. Still Mr. Khan. So if there were any agreements with Image, any agreements with Malibu, you can tell him whether or not it was written. Correct me if I'm wrong. When he says contracts, it doesn't mean only a written contract. Mr. Arnston, I apologize, Mr. Kahn. That's all right. It just became clear from his answer when he said, I can't think of any written contracts. So with this shell company or commune of image, we agreed to take all of our ideas that we sort of created separately and put them into the middle. And then they're sort of shopped that around and had them published by Malibu. And again, I think Malibu may have dealt with us individually. I don't recall. And you don't, if I understand correctly, you don't recall any written contracts, correct? correct? Right. Do you recall what the general structure or terms of the contracts were between you and Malibu? I think it was, I think they ended up getting, it would, they would help us with the production of it, you know, so again with accounting, solicitation, collecting the bills, and then at the end of that, I think they would get 10% of whatever they collected from each individual title. I think that's how it worked. Now, it may have been a flat fee plus 10%, I don't recall, but they got 10% of sales. And the way it worked out is that you, essentially what you and your colleagues at Image would get, you'd pay Malibu something and pay various people things, and then what's left is what you got. No, it actually worked the opposite because Malibu was the publisher and dealt directly with the printers and distributors. They would collect all the monies, deduct their fee out of that, whatever we agreed to at the time, and then whatever was left over then, they may have paid the printers again and some of the shipping, some of the inherent costs, and then whatever was sort of left over then. Then they'd send out the check. And I don't recall whether they sent it to individuals or to the clearinghouse of image. How did it work with who retained the intellectual property rights to the work you did on Spawn? All the books were controlled by the individual creators. What did you do with regard to when you started out with this? What did you do with regard to like copyright notices? I think, I mean, we put notices on the bottom of the first page, or Malibu helped us with that, and I think later on, something along the line, I think we did some filings on the trademarks. How did you come up with the language of the copyright notices that you used? 
You know, probably just from looking at other comic books, use our best knowledge in talking with Malibu. Do you recall putting much thought into that? Just enough to make sure that everybody thought it seemed official, yes. Now in 1992, you had had arranged some guest writers to do some Spawn issues, correct? Yes. How did that come about? Spawn had been out for maybe about a year at this point, or close to it, and Image Comics was founded by a bunch of artists, and the knock against us was that, you know, we didn't know how to write. We could only draw. And so, again, it would be, I thought it would be sort of an interesting idea to bring in some writers on to, onto the books to sort of see what their take would be on some ideas for it. Was that your idea? Right. So how did you go about implementing that idea? I came with a mental list of guys that sort of would fit the bill, that would sort of, sort of would be interesting names to put on it, and then started making phone calls. And who did you come up with as guest writers? Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman, Dave Sim, Frank Miller. How did you come up with Neil Gaiman? I think Neil was given a lot of critical acclaim at that point. Sandman was his book, I believe, that he was writing uh, that was, you know, winning awards. And, you know, he was again and again. Uh, I think Neil had done little, if any other sort of superhero comic book work. And so I thought, again, it would be an interesting choice. When did you first meet Neil? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. As far back as you can recall, recognizing we're talking about stuff that happened 10 years ago. Yes, it probably was at a comic book convention, you know. So before all uh, all of him doing work, <laughs> again, all of us are a small community. You sort of butt into everybody. So my guess is we had an introduction somewhere. And if I understand correctly, prior to Neil doing work for you on the Spawn series, you believe you had met him and run into him on some occasion but you don't, there's no specific recollection, is that right? Right. I don't recall specifically. You were acquainted with him? His work, yes. His work. Okay. How did you, how did you decide you were going to compensate and allocate creative rights between, with regard to these guest writers, you were looking to have help with Spawn? I don't think there was sort of a topic of conversation at the beginning. It was, my first intent was to find the writers and sort of go, hey, here's some, there's an opportunity here. Would you guys be interested in it? And then and then sort of tell them it's a Spawn book and have some fun with it. Later on in some conversations, I told them that they would get $100,000 for doing it. And in a sense, it was pretty much the same conversation for everybody. I wanted them to be equal. So, so did all of them. So they could pass notes back and forth. And so we started from there. Okay, tell me as best as you can recall your conversations with Neil Gaiman in connection with his work for Spawn 9. Mr. Khan, just a second so I can clarify. Alan, do you want the first conversations regarding his agreement to do it, or do you want the conversations all the way through the creation of publishing Spawn 9? Mr. Arnson, I guess the agreement. What would work best is if we, and unless I tell you otherwise, somewhat my question is going to work them through chronologically. Mr. Khan, okay. Mr. Arnson, as best we can, I'm trying to kind of get your recollection out in a logical way without having the questions be too either parsed on the one hand or vague on the other. I would have somehow contacted Neil, talking about him coming and potentially writing an issue. Him eventually saying yes. That sounds like a caveman. Him eventually saying yes. Uh, talking about some of the creative stuff that I was doing already in the book. Talked a little about the money talked a little bit about some of the guys that were already coming on, and then from there the follow-up conversations for the most part would have been sort of creative talk about what we were going to sort of do or not do and how Spawn continuity was doing up to this point and things of that matter. What did you talk about with regard to financial terms? I think at the beginning it was it was just $100,000 and a payment for all works in consideration for him coming on board and doing that, and that we'd pay him in advance before he got started, and then a lump sum would come later. What did you do? What were your conversations with regard to how the process would work? I believe I asked Neil how he normally works. Neil, from my experience, writes different than what I was used to. I would get a plot outline. Neil was one of the writers that likes to write the script before the art instead of after the fact. So I'd done a couple of jobs like that, and so I went, oh, okay, you know, I think Alan Moore had done some in that way. And so I go, however you like to write, you know, sort of write it down 
and then we'll just sort of move forward from there. We got to get a cover out, so we've got to do a cover. Uh, so just come up with some ideas. I'll get a cover because we have to go to the solicitation and then sort of get going. Do you recall where Neil was living when you were having these discussions with him? My understanding is that he was in Minnesota someplace. Did you ever meet in person with Neil in connection with, you know, putting together this agreement to have him write for Spawn prior to him actually starting the job? I don't think so. I might have just been all over the phone, you know. I can't say for certain. What types of... Did you exercise any control with regard to Neil's script? I told him to go and write, and unless something was sort of completely off the radar map about after our discussions on what direction I was heading in, what the book was, and what the characters were about, that, you know, hand it in, and if it looks good, and then we will b bless it and get it out to print. Did you tell him a schedule? This is the schedule you want for him? I probably gave all of them some parameters on the schedule, right. And then you were just looking to receive a script? Right. And along with any conversation, interim conversations along the way for discussions, correct? Right. And Neil was never an employee of you or any of your companies, correct? Right. Did you ever sign any or enter into any kind of work-for-hire agreement with Neil? No. Did you have any discussions with Neil with regard to who would hold what intellectual property rights to the work he was doing? I don't think we got overly specific with it. They were coming on to my book writing for me, so I think it was a basis of understanding from everybody. Would you recall any discussions in connection with that? Nothing specific. We were artists. I don't think we had sat there and talked about copyrights at that moment. Okay, so if I understand, as best you can recall, there weren't discussions with copyrights or trademarks in connection with this, correct? No, not, not at that moment. Did you talk at all before Neil wrote the script of any characters he might introduce or anything like that? Yes, when we were having our creative conversations, his issue was issue 9. Issue 8 was written by Alan Moore. Again, Neil was the most curious of the four as to sort of, you know, continuity in the book and how it all worked, uh, where the other guys were more about doing standalone stuff. So issue 8, Alan Moore delved into the concept of hell after some of my discussions, and so it was sort of an easy one for him to go, hey, Alan's doing hell, how about I do heaven given that spawns characters from the pits of hell so that was neil's suggestion to you oh well i can't say where it came from uh, in the midst of a conversation you know again he was asking questions what is spawn where are you headed with spawn what's in it what's in do you sort of want me to put in there or not put in there uh, and so we sort of had these conversations about what would make an interesting issue these were all over the phone as best you can recall i believe so when did you first recall hearing about the Angela character? We probably came to an understanding. Uh, we were going to deal with Heaven, so we needed an Angel character of some sort. I don't know if she had a name, but I had to get a cover out because the covers precede everything. So once we said we were going to do Heaven and Heaven has angels, I went into the cover and there was, the, uh, and from there, at that point, Neil probably gave her the name at that point. Uh, I don't know if she had a name or if she was just a generic angel at that point. Had Neil provided to you any thumbnail sketches of angels prior to you doing the cover? No. Did Neil provide drafts of his script to you or did you just essentially get a final product that you then plugged into your comic book process? I mean, he gave me a draft that I don't know if I made any or little changes on it and then started drawing away at the time uh, at it because, again, I was the artist on it. So credit seemed pretty fine, and I started doing the artwork. So do you recall making any changes in the words of the script? No. There was a character in Spawn Issue 9 that, for want of a better word, and I'm not trying to put any conclusion on this, but that was Spawn in the Middle Ages. Do you know what I'm referring to? Yes. Yes, right. And we'll call him Medieval Spawn. Yes. And for the purposes of these questions, I understand there are some issues, etc., etc. How did that character come about? Probably through the conversations Neil and I had throwing ideas back and forth and then him inquiring about what directions I wanted to go, uh, what the backstory was of Spawn, what I had done, and what I was planning on doing. And from all of that comes a story. Prior to this medieval Spawn character, had you had any Spawns in other times other than the present? I don't think visually. I may have mentioned it in some of the writing I had done. Do you recall... Pardon me? 
Do you have any specific recollection? No. In that regard? I'll have to go reread my books. But as you sit here today, you have no re recollection, correct? Right. Backing up a minute to the Angela character, one of the early things you did was drew a character with a picture of an angel on it, correct? Yes. Do you recall any further discussions with regard to that character and features, qualities, that kind of thing, prior to you getting the script from Neil? Again, we knew she was going to battle Spawn or there was going to be somebody battling Spawn. There's always a good guy and a bad guy. And so she was essentially going to be the bad guy. And so, you know, she couldn't be a wimp, you know. None of the bad guys are soft looking. So we needed to make her a warrior. Yes. Do you have any recollections of any specific conversations in that regard? No. There's another character in Spawn issue 9 called Count Cogliostro. Do you know which character I'm referring to? Right. Do you have any recollection as to the genesis of that character? Again, in our conversations and, and again, Neil's curiosity about what I was going and what I wanted to do, uh, he wanted to know if there's anything he wanted me or I wanted him to add that I was going to do to sort of get the story going. I told him that I had this anti-hero, that I also wanted this sort of anti-Moses character here, and so this all-sane sort of guy. And so we talked in parameters about this Moses character, and then I was going to eventually bring in the guy. So if you want to plug him in here, so here's sort of parameters of what he is, and if you can find a spot for him, put him in. Conjecture, what's cool is, we do have two different versions when we get to that Neil Gaiman deposition because Gaiman has a big sort of idea for his thesis behind that Cogliostro character. And what were those parameters that you gave to Neil? Again, using Moses as the biblical Moses as sort of the backdrop, sort of the anti version of that guy, a guy who sort of knows more than anybody else and, you know, has more insight than anybody else and may have sort of the divine knowledge of what's going on. Although in this case, he's actually from the pit of hell, which is why he's the anti-Moses. But again, just in those, in those sort of terms. Who came up with the name Cogliostro? I believe it was Neil. Is the same true with Angela? Yes, probably. Did you have any discussions at this time, and I'm talking about the time prior to the publication of Spawn Issue 9, as to who had the rights between Neil and you with regard to these characters he was creating? I think the only conversation uh, was Neil began to ask questions like, what happens if this book gets reprinted or a trade paperback? He started asking sort of follow-up questions. And what did you say? Oh, how do you want me to handle it? And what did he say? Quote, well, you know, I've got a pretty good contract at DC. I'm doing pretty good. I'd wanna, I don't want to be any worse off for the wear here. And so, you know you could just keep it, you know, and get close to my DC contract. That would be good. And what did you say? Okay. And if we made it through the end of the conversation? That's the gist of it. What else do you recall of it? Most of it. That's all you can recall of that? Yes. Mr. Arnson, let's take a break. That'll be good for now? I think so. It's, it's so weird reading this now, since we've read Neil's, and it's like, stuff's different you know like when you read it it's sort of like okay that's what happened and then you read another one and it's like well that's different than what i thought happened it's very strange that classic thing man your version my version and the truth yeah wow interesting he's also you know he, given this testimony he is saying that like yeah no came up with this name no came up with that name he's definitely making the position of creating the aesthetic of Angela before any real work is done by establishing that he made that cover early. And Neil covers that in his deposition a little bit when he gets into the weeds about solicitation dates and distribution and how these covers need to be done a bit early. So that's that's the murky territory. That's the Stanley Jack Kirby argument about like who created what, you know, like while uh, McFarlane is over here making this cover, you know, uh, no Gaiman doesn't know what that character looks like. It is and it isn't, because whenever he follows up with, how did Neil want this handled? And Neil said, you can keep it, just get close to my DC contract. Like, if you make that agreement, yeah. it's super. it doesn't matter who created it. Right. You know, with the Kirby and Stan Lee, copyright law was different. Yeah. So who created it, it has a little bit more legal bearing than possibly this, if you have some other agreement. Yeah. 
<laughs> what a mess. Yeah. What like, a mess. Just reading this last page is makes me uncomfortable. Right, right, yeah. I'm just looking at that you can keep it part, because McFarland speaks in these, like, half sentences and it's a little space like goes in one direction goes in the other direction so i was looking at that you can keep it this is that part where like getting that stuff down on paper exactly that's the oxford comma argument you know what i'm saying man is he saying you can keep it because it's followed up by a you know so is he going in a different direction what does that keep it mean you know when we see the written word well and furthermore was this even said you know what i mean like this is being repeated with somebody who has different interests than the person you're saying said it. So. No, yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You all got to speak your position. You're all here paying lawyers millions of dollars to, to you know, get your story straight and come out with some kind of resolution. Uh, you, you're not going to go to great lengths to be in the other guy's favor. Yes, of course. Um, I enjoyed the uh, walking through the Marvel history and sort of what the pay was like and you get moved to a cool character and interesting perspective there too that is not how i've heard that system described but i'm aware of like um seniority and and you know you get page rates partially based on experience and sometimes you'd hear about old timers who they wouldn't get work because their page rate was they'd gotten to a point where it was like sorry or just too expensive for a book like one, one of the big ones is the john busema conan like they wanted busema right. on conan but but his page rate was too expensive for a dicey new venture so get a jobber in there to do something just so happens that that jobber is a young barry smith who was very hungry and made that thing extra popular grew his ability in a big way left comics and then it was popular enough of a book after about two years of bws doing it that they could afford to put john Buscema on that piece man one of the great like missing pieces of uh the speculator boom is like who are these instigators like there's got to be a little bit more to the story of the creation of spider-man one like there's 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 a conversation that happened and i want to know it you know because that was that kicked off some big time stuff and you know is it defalco is it danny Fingeroff? like who are the people that had that conversation we need to get them on the channel and just talk that bit up. I was hoping to get a little bit more in here. And even when we started the channel with Wizard Magazine number one and Spider-Man 1's already pop, popping and happening, there's, some, there, there's a historically important thumbs up that happens in that midst. I, I remember being really psyched for that book. You yeah, know, like I was in it as a reader then and new mcfarlane you know like he had been gone for a few months i wanted new mcfarlane yeah new mcfarlane spider-man he's gonna write it himself cool you know like i was totally on board but i remember like it wasn't it sold millions of copies you know what i mean like when it actually comes out it's like this is the biggest this is jaws or star wars in terms of like we can make blockbusters now yeah you know if you're marvel and it wasn't I don't feel like that was the way it was talked about before it happened. Right. It was almost like, well, it'll just be Spider-Man and we'll give you a chance to draw it. And, and I can remember McFarlane interviews at the time where he was like, you know, I was ready to take, I forget what his example was, but it'd be like Bean Can Man or something. Rutabaga Man. Yeah. It's yeah, always yeah, yeah. the Rutabaga. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, with the idea of like, you know, he's a new writer, so Gotta I'll, start I'll, I'll take what I can get. And the Spider-Man was kind of like awesome of course but it wasn't viewed like jim lee's x-men would be viewed the following year what's well, like we're relaunching this with a popular artist and and we're going to put some different covers on it and we're going to sell millions of them right it didn't feel like that was the push yeah. so i wonder the guys who are green lighting it i don't know that they had that sense of like this is our hottest guy like it's going to sell a bunch it was more of like maybe this is a guy we don't want to lose yeah why not give him a Spider-Man book? We'll plug it. It'll be the fourth book. Who cares if it's whatever it is? And then when it turns out to be like the biggest seller, I think it surprised people a little bit. It's it's so fascinating, that, that whole moment of time, dude, because that's when we're going to the shopping malls and in the pavilions, like the courtyards in the middle of the malls, they have the uh, trading card vendors on the weekends mm -hmm. doing that whole bit. And those were big selling huge deals and you know our parents are probably similar ages and they were there at the start of marvel like they saw the spider-man's issue ones and stuff they at least passed it by 
and all of that material. And then you start seeing those comics trickle in, you know, but these guys are now parents to little kids. And when those issue ones start popping off, it was our dads who were like, hold on to this. Like I, I missed my chance. I was there for Spider-Man one. I missed my chance. This is your Spider-Man one. Hold on to it for dear life. We're going to those weird shows that aren't even comic conventions. They're just like weird dealer things that would happen. And you see, you could see the Fantastic Four ones there and $10,000 price tag on it or whatever. This is going to be my $10,000 thing. They pull out the X-Force poly bag, different cards. That was the gimmick. One cover, different cards. And some cards are worth more than others. Then they do that multi-cover joint. Things are never the same after that. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting... That moment in time is pretty interesting, and I would be curious to hear the conversations behind totally. the scenes because they had to think of like whatever book was available. They had to run through all those options. Yeah, like, give him, give him Web Spider Man, give him whatever. You know, I guess he says they didn't want him to leave Spider Man, so that's a that's a big indicator that somebody made a made a decision behind the scenes. But yeah, interesting what ifs for that time period. And you think like, when does the speculator market kick off? Could is it, it Spider-Man that? one? I mean, that precedes Wizard by what nine nine months or something like that. Um, Multi covers for that, like like platinum cover, all that stuff. The platinum was created for the retailers who mm-hmm. ordered a certain amount or something like this. Uh, it's got to be around then. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Interesting and, and, time period. And maybe it came out of nowhere. You know, that's usually how these things begin. It does feel incredible to me too, just looking back at his career and thinking like. That's six years in, Spider-Man comes out. Or no, that was 1990. So it's five years in, and then he does a three million selling Spider-Man. Yeah. That's a really, really short window. People do one graphic novel in five years now. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's the, the old system, man. Get it out, 22 pages. No also, fuss, no the, um, the number of companies that he's running is wild. Like, he, did, he had to have some smart accountant, business advisor, somebody... That, that must have joined the Todd McFarlane team early. But there's all this fascinating stuff when you get into into business and how stuff works and how like these like losing companies like don't have to pay taxes in America and it's like you know you set something up in the Caymans, you know Apple sets up something in the Caymans, uh, they license you know that company licenses stuff from Apple or or uh, Apple licenses to them something so that like all the money goes to this company that doesn't pay taxes and Apple has like this mm-hmm. deficit. There's like a whole scam to it, man. And it's, it's all sort of, you know, it's legal. No, nobody's doing anything illegal or whatever, but uh, yeah, there's definitely a something going on. Yeah. And, 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 and I, and I, I say that based on like, from my perspective, it feels like McFarlane was the most business savvy operator out of this image group. Yeah. And you know, like, it's just, why didn't every image guy follow suit? You know what I mean? It's, like, if that's, a, if that's a blueprint that works, like, why is it almost like he figured it out and nobody else did? Or It's the fascinating part. Maybe it's, they tried their own version of it. And, it it's, it's when we started the channel and we were able to look at these guys, you could, you know, after a certain couple million dollar mark, it's all kind of the same. So, like, we, you could say that Jim Lee, McFarland, Life Out were, like, of equal footing, at, at that certain moment, it would be family stuff that would be the extra thing. Like maybe Rob could have taken a bigger chance because he didn't have kids and all that kind of thing. So a kid might be willing to take more of a chance. But they were basically at the same level. And we, with retrospect, see the three directions that they went through. McFarlane built the empire that he commands, you know, like Jim Lee went back to be a corporate guy. And, and you know, Rob's doing whatever he's doing. But McFarlane created the Empire, and they all started off the same position. It was interesting because if you look at the Jim Lee, Rob Liefelds, they sell their book. It sells great. Now they're putting out a bunch of number ones. McFarlane didn't go that route. Right. Um, Yeah, I don't know, man. It's interesting stuff. So cool to dig into this. I I, I do enjoy any of these, like, explain comics to a lay person, which seems like most of these depositions have some part of that. And it's cool, and it's cool from different eras. You know, as we get into maybe some of these other depositions from different time periods, I like hearing the industry explained uh, in in, in ways that maybe, you know, we don't talk this way to each other. I will say that after reading the the Todd McFarlane explanation about how comics are made, I'm not so sure he knows how they're made. (laughs) 
You know, I, I, I did think about like when he's talking about like the uh, the circles or the bubbles and the tails and stuff. It's a, such a solitary thing. Like he's he's working at greater than a monthly book pace. Yeah. Who's he talking to? You know, I mean, that's a head down at your drawing table, back to the world, drawing pictures of like silliness. Yeah, like, no, no, no like, doubt. Uh, it's it it's you you know you say it because like we sit around, we're making videos, we're trying to explain this stuff that's in our head. But most people didn't in comics, and especially the guy who's actually doing faster than a book a month rate. Right. You know, it's a lot of just like, yeah, this is where the the, the circle will go for the for the words. <laughs> I kind of love that part. Riveting. It is. Riveting. Good to go? Yes. All right, man, we're going to keep this deposition going next Monday. Uh, K-Fabers, like, follow, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Hit the bell. We'll notify you when new vids are available. Jimmy. Drop it on them. Hulk Grand Design, coming in March. Pre-order it now at your local comic shop. Let them know you want a copy. Let them know which cover you want. You know, if you want a special cover, you got to let them know in advance if you want to be sure that you'll get it. But the bigger thing is kayfabe effect. Tell those comic shops that Hulk Grand Design is the book they need, at least uh, one of the books they need for March. Yes, the other book that is required for the kayfabe audience, man. Red Room Trigger Warnings Issue 1 is going to be coming out in March. It'll be coming out on a monthly basis, so you know you're going to have two cafe books in April. Uh, the next Hulk Grand Design and issue two of Trigger Warnings uh, that you can pre-order right this minute at the Fantagraphics website. Uh, every issue completely self-contained. If you want to read these comics today, my best art to date for sure. Every new page, man, is better than the one previous. You could go into my Patreon, patreon.com slash Three bucks for the archive there. We have link trees in the description below this video where you can get to all of our stuff and help support the channel, keep things going, uh, so we can keep producing these videos on a daily basis. What else do we have out there, Jim? Subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe e-newsletter at the links below this video. You can also find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts and merchandise at the links below this video. Given those margin orders, we'll be on our way. Make more comics. Stay out of court, bud.